This episode is brought to you by the McDonald's one two three dollar menu. It's hard to have a friend who's a slow eater because when you finish your McChicken sandwich, watching them finish their McDouble cheeseburger and small fries can be excruciating until they notice you staring and offer up a few fries. That must be what friends are for. There's a deal for every moment on the McDonald's one two three dollar menu. Get a McChicken sandwich, McDouble cheeseburger, four piece chicken McNuggets, or small fries for just a few bucks. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any offer or combo meal. This episode is brought to you by HP Plus. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP Plus, and the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh? That is smart. HP Plus. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com/smart. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Welcome to the Washed Up Email Podcast, episode 84. I am Tom Mullen, and today we welcome John Davis from Q and Not You and Title Tracks. John and I talk about his new Title Tracks album, discuss the Washington, D.C. scene he grew up in, and some of his favorite bands from the late 90s. He's got some deep cuts. One amazing project we talk about is archiving Ian Mackay's enormous fanzine collection. You're going to not want to miss that. This episode is sponsored by the upcoming You Blew It album, Abendrot, out November 11th on Triple Crown Records and was produced by Evan Weiss of Into It Over. Abendrot doesn't sound like anything You Blew It have done. And that is a good thing. This is a giant leap forward for not only the band, but the independent scene itself. This is episode 84 of the Washed Up Email Podcast with John Davis from Q and Not You and Title Tracks. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you've, you've spoken to a number of friends of mine, especially from kind of back in the day, like uh, I think Bernie McGinn, right? Yep. Yeah. And, you know, the you know, Braid people and lots of people that I were, you know, was friends with, you know, going back probably 20 years with some of them and, um, or people that I, you know, was aware of. So I, I definitely knew that, um, you know, that I knew of your, of, of your podcast and knew kind of your mission and what you're doing. And, and I always, um, I always like when people are just, um, really wholeheartedly behind this thing that maybe at first, like a lot of people, I think it's sort of like, like oh you know um, you know like it's sort of like a sort of like a quizzical response at first and then it's sort of like you wind up being sort of ahead of everyone else <laughs> in your love for something and and I sort of associate you and your podcast and the website and all that with that of being at like the front end of understanding that there was actually something really cool that was happening during this time and there's a lot of great music and um, so so yeah I was already already aware of you. So DC and Discord and those things were around you, right? I mean, what did yeah, you... Yeah, that was it. I mean, my first show was in the spring... Or my first punk show, I should say, was in the spring of 1992, uh, April April 7th, maybe, 1992. I saw Fugazi, L7, and Bikini Kill at the uh, Sanctuary Theater in Washington, DC. And that was, you know, obviously a pretty great introduction to to this whole new world. Um, you know, I've been listening to Fugazi, Minor Threat, 
um, you know, some of the some of the sort of bedrock DC punk bands, Grey Matter, Shudder to Think, um, Holy Rollers, a few of those kind of bands, but I had still not really gone to a show until I was um, I was 15 in the spring of 1992, and and went uh, went to that. Was lucky to have that be my first show, and. Um, what did you take away from that? What did you like? I, I mean, that is a fucking crazy first show. <laughs> I was scared. That was sort of my feeling. I, it was when I was there almost the whole time. It was this mixture of you know truly of like fear and wonder and and just total ex- excitement, um, awe. Um, but I was it was like it was scary. It's hard to describe it without sounding kind of silly, but it was there was something about it that was just completely alien to me. You know, like I just had never been to a punk show and it was, you know, something very quickly I got really used to, but just, you know, we were in uh, the you know kind of venue I'd certainly never seen punk bands in. There were just different people. There were these literature tables with all this incredible, um, almost an, over, an almost overwhelming amount of, of information and new ideas and just, people I wanted to meet and talk to. And, and I'm, you know, I'm a pretty introverted person. So I, I, but in those settings, you know, I just saw all these people and these ideas and this music that I just immediately wanted to get to know and wanted to learn about and like share with friends. It was just, it was definitely like an arrival of this is, I'm so into this, but but the whole time I was really just kind of freaked out as well. You know, it was um, intimidating and there were, you know, strange and unusual people and, and I was just in this different kind of venue and it was, it was just amazing. And the bands, I mean, Bikini Kill was, I, I, I can completely summon in my mind images and moments from seeing them play and um, like seeing Billy like run around on the stage yelling, George Bush is a pig and like, pushing up his nose and kind of staggering around the stage while he's screaming that into the microphone and, and just seeing like Kathleen Hanna in person. Like imagine that it's your first show and it's like Kathleen Hanna, Ian Mackay, you know, like I'll keep it show to just like all these incredible people that I just had the uh, unbelievable fortune of having be performing at my first, you know, punk show. What's interesting um, too, is that those, ve- like that venue, as you kind of described it, I was thinking, as you're looking at those tables, as people have merch, have CDs and vinyl, it's almost as if the internet was out on that table for you, because it was the Food Not Bombs, it was the stuff, you know, zines that were there. It just seemed like you could, you had everything there, but it was overwhelming, just like when you sit there at Google (laughs) and you don't know what to type in. Right, and it was, and it was... It was the music, but it was as much as it was the music that was available there. It was, yeah, it was like the fanzines, the flyers, the political literature. It was a it was a benefit show that was organized by Positive Force, which is a group you might be familiar with. Um, you know who organized um, all kinds of activist events, who organized concerts, who organized protests, and you know they were there in full force at that show, and they had tables full of literature, and it was just like again, you know, I, it sounds like I'm exaggerating or like it's silly, but it was just my, I mean, my mind was really blown, you know, it was just like, you know, animal rights, veganism, you know, anti-war activism, um, all kinds of just new ideas and things that I had only heard, you know, a little bit about or only knew a little bit about. And it was just all there in front of me. And there were people there willing to talk to me. And I was, I mean, I was just so shy at that, at that event. And as with many others, but like, 
I, you know, so I didn't, I didn't talk to anyone yet, but I, um, I was just so, just, just so overwhelmed by how exciting and new and, um, yeah, inspirational this was. And, and really quickly, it, it really changed my life. I'd say very quickly. Were you playing drums at that time? Um, casually, yes. Like I was in a band called Corm, which was like my high school band. And, um, and we, we wound up doing that band for a few years. I did that into college and, and, you know, and actually wound up playing with a bunch of the bands that, that you have talked to on your show. But, um, um, I was more of a guitarist at that point, really. But, um, I played drums on a few songs, but I was, I was never a drummer, really. I was never, I never, still to this day, have never owned a drum set. And um, I'm all throughout every band I've ever been in, I've been borrowing my friend's drum set that, you know, that with that, that was my friend since my first band in eighth grade. So I'm still using his drum set. I'm still using his PA. Um, and uh, so I was kind of learning how to play drums at that point, but I was really a guitarist. And uh, um, yeah, I absolutely just wanted to be Ian McKay and, and Dee Pichotto. I just wanted to be like everybody I was seeing at these shows and, and just make music and just do something that was so exciting to me right away. And then for what other things were you doing at that time? Was it, I mean, if that show happened, I mean, DC was getting so many things. Was it ordering from, uh, was it going to the record store? Was it ordering stuff through the mail? Um, what was, what were yeah, some other the, things you were doing? The first year of, of me getting into punk was kind of, was about, um, there were a couple of fanzines that kids, like older kids in my school were doing. One was called Who Cares? And another was called Fake. And those were um, really, really highly influential for me. I just um, just com- really tried to absorb everything that was in there, the, like the attitude of it, the, um, the music that they were talking about, um, the attention to aesthetics and design that they really embraced with those fanzines. I mean, they're, even today, almost 25 years later, I, mean, I still think they're really incredible documents and, and like creative products from that time. So almost as soon as I was into the music, I was into fanzines and then definitely going to record stores around here, like yesterday and today records, smash records, vinyl ink. Um, those were really, really crucial record stores for me. I remember, I can, you know, I can tell you in, in very boring detail about my first mail order that I ever did, which was, you know, I remember walking to the mailbox at like midnight uh, out, out on the corner to like go order a record from Kill Rock Stars and just understanding like the the enormity of that event in my life <laughs> as I was doing it. Um, and I, I ordered the Cupid Car Club single from Kill Rock Stars and I think it was the summer of 1993. And, uh, you know, I'll just anything I could get into, I was all about it. Just, you know, reading those zines I mentioned or, or Maximum Rock and Roll. But, and even like from mainstream music sources, like I was a huge fan of Tower Pulse magazine, which is like the free. Yeah, that music. was huge. Yeah, and I learned about so many good bands from, from Pulse and even though it was just this sort of, you know, sort of free rag that they gave away to try to, to sell music. Um, there was, a, I think there was a pretty high quality writing in there and, um, and it was really influential on me. So, um, and then I just also had a lot of friends who loved music. So we would swap mixtapes and, um, but right away I was, I was really just into like 
finding music and then like sharing it with friends and getting it out there and going to shows with friends and, you know, sneaking out to go see shows and just doing whatever I had to do to go, to go see these bands. Now you did a zine as well, right? Yes. I started a fanzine in the summer of 1993. So, um, I was 16 and again, totally inspired by who cares and fake fanzine. Those names are great, my, by the way. Those names are and, perfect. Yes, exactly. And uh, and so I started one called Slanted, and the first interview I ever did was with Keith Pichotto, and I just got his phone number somehow and called him. Probably Discord gave it to me, and I, I called him and was just, you know, like, hey, I'm doing this fanzine. Uh, will you meet with me? And, and he agreed, and, and we met before a pretty incredible show. Fugazi was playing at the Washington Monument, and um, there are a lot of photos from that concert that have become pretty iconic, I think, in, in Fugazi's lore. But I met with him, you know, an hour or two before that show, and we just sat down, and I asked him a bunch of terrible questions, and, and he very patiently sat through it, and, and that was the first interview I ever did. That sounds like my first zine, where I, I've got the dude from Karate's email and just emailed him and he accidentally, he, he, or not accidentally, maybe he did accidentally write back, but he wrote back <laughs> and actually gave answers and, uh, you know, that little, I don't know, those little things mean a lot because then it's, it, it started you. It wasn't, exactly. and it kind of, it was that encouragement and I think him spending that 30 minutes, however long you kept him, uh, that was, that was enough to start that. Yeah, and that was one of the great things of, you know, about the sort of the ethos of, of punk and indie rock was just about, you know, about communicating with people. It's like, if, if someone cares enough to talk to me, no matter, you know, if it's some, you know, the, um, um, some micro fanzine that, you know, no one has even read yet because it doesn't even exist yet. It's like, you are there, you are there to talk to people. And yeah, exactly. You never know what might happen. And, um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, yeah, but both of us sort of haven't started in that same way where you just start from, zero and you just start talking to people and and uh, and then eventually you meet all these amazing different people and you get to tell their stories and and it's pretty great just you know you just want to get it out there you want to share ideas you want to like sort of help spread these voices around and yeah of course you know not everybody's going to get it or care but um that's just the the great thing about you know connecting under the umbrella of music or or punk or or anything um is just when you find these people who um, you kind of understand each other and you can exchange ideas freely. And it's just, it's just one of the most beautiful things in life that I've experienced is getting to, you know, share ideas about music and, and create creativity and creative things. And, um, and that's just, you know, one of the, sort of the blessings of, of, of music and of punk and DIY culture. Um, and that there's ostensibly this, you know, openness that, you know, people want to hear new things, you know, that's why we're all here, you know, we want to do things differently than what, you know, than what the mainstream tells us to do or what we've been taught to do. You know, we want to, we want to do things differently. We want to hear different things. And that is, you know, very much ostensibly at the core of punk and DIY. And that's why it still matters to me today, just as much as it did 25 years ago. And I'm certain you know, if I'm still here in 25 years, it'll matter to me then and another 25 years beyond that, you know. Maybe that's a point where, and people will roll, roll their eyes, but it's that mainstream fan maybe wants the same thing. 
just give me the way you did it, give me the hit, give it to me again, I'm fine. And that's okay. I know people that are like that. I'm sometimes like that. But for this DIY, it's that constant evolving of I want to see what's next. I mean, I get so excited when I answer or see emails from bands from all over the world and they send me their link. I want to click on it because I want to see what they've made out of this this scene and what they're what they're trying to do next. And that's going to keep make, making it exciting for me. And I think for you too, you're never going to, you're, but again, that, that waiting part, I love that you, you know, mail order, you had to wait everybody out yeah. there. You had to wait for things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, yeah. And, and that element you know, that, that we do sort of lament that, that it's gone. I mean, I'm sort of glad, I mean, I'm assuming you and I are sort of around the same age and, and I'm, you know, and I'm, you know, we are sort of lucky to, you know, um, to have sort of experienced the end of, you know, of that, um, of that era where it was just a little bit different, where you had to wait a little bit longer and, um, the gratification was not quite as immediate. And, um, and there's, yeah, and there was value in that. And I think that that's a lesson that we still retain, even though, um, again, I assume you and I are similar in that we also want things now too. You know, we want, I want, I want to hear new music every day. I want to learn new things every day. Um, but I also I do retain that lesson of of the value in and having to wait for something and and sort of savoring something you know when you, when you have a when you have a, a, an album and you just you when you have a CD player in your car or a tape player in your car and you're just listening to that album over and over all the way through um, you know things are a little bit different now um, and you know I'm I'm glad things are the way they are now but I'm also glad to have experienced things the way they were in the, you know, not that far away uh, past, you know, and I, and I'm, I feel very grateful for that. And it informs who I am as like a lover of music and creative things, you know, even today. Yeah. You know, what's cool. What I want to stick on the zine part is a, a, a council member um, sent this to me right before the uh, interview started uh, from health like sound. Number six, winter <laughs> 2000, your American football review of the, of their record. Uh, uh-huh. Which I won't read the whole thing, but I will read the uh, I will read the last sentence. Um, Please remind me. Great. Uh, this this is a fantastic record. Other than its cliched emo layout, American football's debut full length is about flawless. Uh, there's a I will this I will post this. Uh, um, someone had sent this to me right before they were like, John wrote this. You totally should mention it. What's great about this? is, and I talked about this a little briefly with the person that sent this, was at the time, this wasn't a revered record. Oh, no. This was, okay, great, it's fantastic, uh, a couple great songs on it. It wasn't this, like, it didn't have this uh, three nights at um, uh, Webster Hall sold out. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it was like, I, I wouldn't call them an afterthought because I liked them at the time, but it was it was not... No, not at all. I I never would have thought for a second, you know, when when that record came out that 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 that, that would be something that has gone on to the status that it has gone on to. But that again, that's sort of one of the really cool things about like the unraveling of of a story with you know, with music and with, with a band or with or with a musician or, or a song, you know, you don't really know where it's gonna go and you don't know which people it's gonna resonate with and um that's kind of sort of one of the many things about what's cool about music and uh but i do remember liking them a lot of the time and i was just a total huge fan of 
you know, the, the you know, as the Midwestern emo thing at that time. And it was a bit of a departure for me because, you know, I, I'd grown up as such like a, you know, partisan discord DC fan, like Symbol machines, Teen Beat, Discord, Level Records, all of the you know labels from here that were doing cool things. And then at some point, like around '95 or '96, I, I, I think I kind of drifted and got a little bored, or just wanted something different, really. And then that was when, um, you know, I, I actually met personally, you know, the people that wound up being in Rainer Maria or, or in Braid or you know Get Up Kids, Sarge, Compound Red. Um, on and on, like all those bands. And so from, you know, 95 to the late nineties, I was just a total devotee of, of that kind of music. I mean, of what, you know, I guess is, you know, called emo. And, um, that, you know, that wasn't that huge in DC, you know, that, that didn't really register. I mean, like, like I mentioned my band Corm, you know, we played, we, we did a, a few weeks of touring with Braid, um, in 1996, I think. And, you know, the first show of the tour was here in DC and we, we played in a basement to like 15 people, you know, it was, they were not, they were not popular at that point. Um, you know, and, and really a lot of those bands and I, I, even the get up kids, the band I did after quorum was called the elusive. And we, you know, I, I knew those guys in the get up kids somehow, and they set up a show for, for us in Kansas city where they were from and it was my band, The Elusive, and um, and the Get Up Kids at this place in Kansas City called the Fuse Box. And again, it was probably like thirty people, maybe forty. It was not a big show, but I think even by the end of that year, they they had really blown up. But I was a huge fan of all that stuff, and um, you know who else? Like Jejun and you know Texas is the Reason and Samuel and all those just all those bands. Promise Ring as a very early supporter of the promise ring for their that first single on foresight i was just a huge fan and i worked at a record label called art monk construction um helping with their mail order at that time so i was really at um sort of i don't know i don't know it was like an not not the epicenter but it was it was an epicenter of that kind of music at the time and um so i just i was really in the front row and getting to see a lot of these great bands and hear their demo tapes you know art monk construction always got those demo tapes, Get Up Kids, you know, Promise Ring, Jejun, Texas is the Reason. All those bands would send their tapes to Art Monk to, to you know, for consideration. And um, and so I, yeah, I got to hear these bands very early. Um, and then, yeah, because I was in the band, because I loved that kind of music, I wound up playing shows with almost all of them at some point. One of my favorite bands on Art Monk um, is Seven Story Mountain. Yeah, underrated. I was there when when that album Leper Ethics was named because um, it was like Eric Astor who ran Artman Construction. My memory is that for a long time he was trying to get any band to name to name a song or a record Leper Ethics. I don't know why. And um, and I remember seeing like the handwritten note. It was like Leper Ethics is is the name or something when they agreed to name. I think it was, you know, one of the, maybe their album or first album or second album or something. But yeah, Seventh Story Mountain was like a really uh, was a, an, an underrated band. As with the Transmagetti, uh, which is like another Art Monk band, and um, you know he had good taste for you know that he had a good feeling for like what was going to be big, I guess, in the scene of that kind of music. And you know, Frodis and Karate, Crying Ruin, Hoover, Lincoln, 
Glendale, all these really great bands and records. Um, he Kerosene 44 was another one from DC. Um, yeah, that was just completely my lifeblood at that at that point when I was working at that label, and and they they had a distribution called Lumberjack as well. And, yeah, Lumberjack and I, was big. Yeah, and so I, I filled many orders, you know, for for them, and there was a little mini record store that that they ran that I worked at, and it was a great education. Did you guys do Mac Rock? You had to have. You and I, you did Mac Rock uh, a couple times, yeah. Yeah, I remember I went to about 10 of them. Uh, I think the first 10, I might have missed one along the way, but for the most part, I was at those. And what I always found funny, and I think it kind of references your mentioning Love It Records or Kerosene 54, Frotus, and of some of the stuff, Art Monk, was that term math rock, which I, oh, think, yeah. which I think some saw it as screamo. Some, you know, was like angular, but it was like DC, but it wasn't. It was more spazzy. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, I, I, that there was like a couple years where it was like, if you were a math rock band, you got booked at Mac rock and you were good to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the DC influence, you know, was, I think was considered, you know, to, to be the sort of angular, um, sort of, you know, math rock or, or whatever kind of, um, types of music with odd time signatures. I mean, Hoover is a prime example of that. You know, Fugazi dabbled in that. Um, my band, Korn, was, you know, was like serious, serious disciples of that kind of music. Um, Kerosene 454 is another one. Um, you know, the, that was a very popular thing. And then, you know, in this region, you know, like a little bit south of here, like Richmond and Harrisonburg, you know, you had the Maximilian Colby and, um, and Hose Got Cable, who were an incredible band, which, um, you know, again, that scene, um, you know, overlapped a lot with DC, and then there was, it was just like all these Zen diagrams, and there's all this overlapping of, you know, one band is a little bit more emo, another band is a little bit more math rock, and another one is this, and what band is screamo, or, you know, whatever, but it all kind of, you know, everybody played the same fests, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like, people in Promising, like, played Foursquare with, you know, someone from Policy 3, you know, like, it was, the those, there was just all this crossover under this larger umbrella of things and um do you and that have, was sort of what made it cool do you have policy of three stuff because i uh, no that was actually a band i i struggled to get into i there was a whole cluster of bands especially when i worked at Art Monk construction because we would always get their records and um there's sort of like uh like bands like frail and uh fields like fallow policy of three um, that school of emo, I, I tried and just could not get into. And, and I don't know exactly why. If it I love like, that shit. I don't know if it's like a melodic sense that is different than mine or, or what, but like, I, you know, I really tried <laughs> with that stuff to get into it. Um, that and stuff, I just, yeah, that stuff for me, it just, I loved the, the chaos of it. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I think it was sort of my little metal tinglings. Like I, I, I was a huge metal fan, so I kind of loved that they were just like, like the the musicianship. A lot of times, I was like, they're doing all these crazy things, plus they're playing, you know, technical things, um, or it's just a, a noise, which I didn't mind. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, that was a, you know, you're right, a separate school. Um, you know, if it was the, you know, promising and stuff, they're all kind of playing in that same, that that same world. Yeah, and like I don't know if you like the San Diego thing, 
either, you know, like, like Antioch Arrow or Heroin or any of those kind of bands that, you know, that was another scene that like, I, I other than Drive Like Jehu, who didn't exactly qualify for that, but um, like the Gravity Records thing was another thing I sort of struggled to get into again, because it was not as melodic as the stuff that I liked. Um, and, and so that I, you know, I, I learned, I think after a few years, <laughs> like where, like where my parameters were of like what I was getting into. And it did tend to be more melodic stuff, even if I like, you know, obviously like hard edge music of some kind, but, um, and I liked hardcore bands. I mean, I liked Ass Factor 4 and, you know, and, you know, Downcast and, and, um, you know, Damnation, all these bands that, you know, that meant a lot to me, but, um, never quite hit me in the same way that the more melodic stuff did. I was just, you know, a huge fan of Braid and, yeah, Promise Ring, Get Up Kids, Mineral, all those bands, like, just blew me away. What's interesting, too, the time that you formed, we are the same age, so I believe we're very, very close, so the, a lot of these things all kind of make sense in what was happening. What's interesting, you guys, you know, Q and Not You forming in 98, right in the middle of kind of a lot of this, before the boom, <laughs> yep. and a lot of times, you know, you were touring with a lot of the same type of bands, but that term, you know, from post-hardcore to dance punk, which I thought was mm-hmm. really interesting because punk kids dug you. Hardcore kids were down. And emo kids loved you. <laughs> like, you kind of yeah, could hit all those different things. <laughs> I don't, and I, I'm not quite sure how it worked out that way, but, uh, but I, it did seem to work out that way. And I think maybe it was just like... I. I, at the time, was not as willing to admit, like, some of the things that were influencing us. Like, I think, you know, we we formed in the summer of 98, you know, which which I was still, you know, like, wholeheartedly into, you know, emo bands and, and math rock and all those kind of things. But, like, almost, like, within a month or two of us starting Q&U, I had a really quick and sudden shift towards more, like, old, like old school post-punk and and punk rock and um just kind of stopped listening to newer music and just thought that wasn't cool at all anymore because i was discovering all this old stuff that i'd either only heard a little bit about or i knew you know i knew an xdc song here or there but then then once i dove in and, and heard english settlement and drums and wires and black sea and all those records for the first time and or you know getting into gang of four for the first time very deeply or any of those kind of bands it was like, it was almost like new music for me. And that was, that was my, that became my passion. And that kind of went for the other, other guys in the band, not to mention we were, you know, really competitive, I think as well. So it became like, ah, we don't listen to promise ring or we don't listen to who, you know, we then became dismissive of our, you know, the, the people that were active at the same time we were, because I think we were sort of overly competitive and maybe not being willing to admit that, um, some of that music was still a pretty big influence on us. Certainly the first two Not You record is, is influenced by, you know, what could be called emo music or especially like math rock. Um, though, you know, to me, the biggest bands that influenced the, the Q Not You record are Fugazi, Jawbox, and Trenchmouth, um, but also mixed with like XTC, Gang of Four, and then some of the different kinds of music we were just starting to get into, like, you know, like just like more obscure disco music and, and Afrobeat and go-go and all these things that, you know, we were starting to learn about that were very early creeping into 
the music we were making. But it's just, for whatever reason, we just made this music that kind of crossed over to, that hit enough spots for people from different musical worlds, I guess. And, um, and, uh, and it just kind of, it just kind of worked. Well, did you, you kind of say, you know, Jawbox, Trenchmouth, Fugazi. I mean, that's a, those are some, those are some heavy hitters and, um, having, you know, big, big members in each of those bands <laughs> Yeah, that, uh, influenced, uh, things, I guess, I mean, talk a little bit more about, I mean, if it was Trenchmouth or, Jawbox. I mean, Trenchmouth was, you know, that's the band that to me, like, I don't really like to sort of, you know, go on about how a band is unfairly taught, you know, like is overlooked or anything like that. I mean, I do it, but, you know, like that is truly a band to me that is so, so unfairly overlooked, you know, I mean, they're, they're such a great band. And I mean, their last two records to me are extraordinary especially the last one, the broadcasting system. And if anyone likes Q&IU and has not heard, you know, Trench Mouth's broadcasting system, they should hear it because it's a huge, huge influence on, on what we did. Um, Drawbox, you know, pretty much start to finish. We're just a band that I loved and, and still love. And um, for your own special sweetheart and um, novelty and their self-titled record were massive influences on Q&IU. Um, and also as people, I mean, that's like a really important thing to point out was um, the influence that Jawbox as people and as like creative beings had on us as like the members of Q and not you. I mean, we, we just sort of grew up in their shadows and, you know, hung out with them and kind of sort of like nipped at their heels, like learning about, you know, music and about what it meant to be in a band. And they were such willing mentors to us and, um, and we're so kind and so open and so, um, so totally free of pretense, which, um, you know, was just, was really refreshing. Um, cause that was something that in the DC scene, you know, as a, as a 16 year old, I was really intimidated by and what I perceived to be sort of pretentious behavior by, you know, other bands or members of the scene. And Jawlocks was just completely devoid of that. I mean, they're just, they seemed very honest, unpretentious, um, people who loved music and who loved playing music and just transforming a room. And, um, and we really stuck to that as a, as a, um, as a template that we followed, um, in how, how to run a band, you know, how you write your songs. And then obviously sonically we ripped off a lot from them, especially on our first record. Um, I think DC is really special in that. I felt that when I, even the limited time that I was at Black Cat or 930 Club or at, at a record store or just being with people that were from there, you were kind of, you grew up in it. What was different about them, DC, um, than other places? What, why? Well, DC had, you know, already, you know, by, by 19, the early 90s when I was getting into it, there had already been, you know, this decade plus of really exciting, inspirational you know, creativity from, from DC, you know, uh, making music and fanzines and filmmakers and photographers and, you know, authors, there was already, there was so much going on and yes, there was real openness and having someone like Ian Mackay as, as sort of, I suppose, like the figurehead of the scene is a very fortunate thing because Ian is a, uh, very unpretentious, very open person and is, um, 
And I mean, that's, that is kind of his persona is just so no nonsense, like, you know, let's just get to it and, and let's do this. You know, that, that, that is him, you know? Um, but he's also a really, a really funny guy. And I, I feel like that sense of humor was a big part of the DC scene, even though it had a reputation as this sort of humorless, um, pious scene, you know, like the sort of like pilgrims of, of punk or whatever. And, um, that was really not true, especially if you knew the people. But, you know, I think that it even, it, it emerged in the music as well. Um, but it was just this, you know, it was, um, there was already a great foundation there when I got into it. And, yeah, I mean, it was just openness, like being open and welcoming and, like, trying to let people in on the secret. Um, and it's like, hey, if you're here and you're interested in what we're doing, like, let's talk about it. These are people that love music. And, you know, and if you love music, I think generally, you know, you want to talk about it and you want to share it with your friends and, and other people. And, and, you know, there, there was that element of, you know, proselytizing in the scene at the time. And probably, you know, I'm sure still is where it's just like, we got something great here. We want to spread it with people. And, um, you know, and it was, again, it's just really fortunate. There were all these great people and there still is today. I mean, this is, we're closing in on like 40 years of punk in DC and it's, um, it's as strong today as it's been in a long time. I would say to me, like the DC scene today is as strong as it's been in 15, 20 years, I think. Do you think there'll be anything for, I'm not saying that there's, there's obviously, I mean, there's that joke that, you know, there's always somebody at the Fugazi house asking for an interview or doing a documentary or, um, you know, and maybe that's sort of part of the charm that he will say yes to those dumb things or that dumb kid probably calling him on the phone and asking him like you did for Gee. That same thing's probably still happening. The, the I I keep, you know, I just think there 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 should be, I'm not saying like a statue, but I just feel like there needs to be this, uh, you know, where's the pre- the presidential medal of honor or whatever for, for him or at least something to show like how much that influenced independent thought, independent culture on the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think in in the way the tribute is coming, you know, with with the the amount of people that still want to still want to talk to him and still care about, you know, the music he's done and and that he's, you know, the music that he's been a part of and that he has fostered and encouraged and created here in DC and um you know, again, I mean like Discord, it's it's 30 six years or something like that that Discord's been going on and like people still care. Like that is amazing. And the music still resonates as you know, a lot of it resonates as much today as it did when it first came out. You know, I mean people like are passionate about Minor Threat and Rice of Spring and Dag Nasty and Fugazi and et, et cetera, et cetera. You know, like that itself is the tribute and and I know he feels that and I know that he appreciates that. And I, you know, I see him all the time. I'm, I'm seeing him tomorrow. And, you know, he, he's still, he is still that figurehead. Um, even if his presence, like, kind of intimidates people sometimes. I think people who don't know him don't really, like, know quite what to make of him and his persona um, or who are sick of seeing, seeing him in documentary films or being talked, you know, being talked to about, you know, whatever aspect of the past they're talking about. But, um, yeah, we are very fortunate to have someone like him as one of the sort of figureheads of the scene. And he's been a huge influence, not just on DC, but the world. And, uh, and that's, that's a pretty amazing thing. So, um, yeah, I, I like the idea of some sort of, 
medal for him, though I'm sure he would reject it. <laughs> sort of like, sort of like Bob Dylan with the no. I mean, straight it would straight up be like a Bob Dylan situation. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> be like, no, nope, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of, you know, Q, not you, and the the we talked, you know, 2000 first record, 2002 second record, 2004. My jam is uh, the second record, Different Damage. Mm-hmm. Those have the, those are chock full of hits for me. Um, interesting times because '01, a lot of things happened in that sort of punk hardcore scene. '02, by that last record, a lot of stuff was happening. Did you feel anything? Just like you said, you were sort of with the wave of the you know Braid or Get Up Kids playing those smaller shows. What did you see overall the scene? I mean, definitely for me in early 2000s, it was like the New York City, um, that sort of, you know, rock uh, resurgence that kind of happened for a hot minute. Um, Obviously, the emo boom post Bleed American. What other things did you notice being in it around that time? Yeah, I mean, the, you you mentioned a lot, you know, a lot of them, like what was going on, and like our thing, like from like start to end, was that we were always like there was just this contrarian streak in our band that like whatever was happening, like we did not want you know want to be a we didn't want to, we didn't want to be a part of it. We wanted to reject it, and um, and like that's good and bad. I mean, I think there were good things that came from that, and you know, probably some annoying things that came from that. But it was. Um, that was just who we were and we, you know, we really actively, but also, but also just with ease, just wanted to just do something different. I mean, each of our three records, I think are pretty distinct from each other, even though it's all, you know, it's definitely all Q or not you or whatever the whole, the whole way, you know, we were just, and still are like such voracious consumers of music. And like, we are always searching for music and something exciting and like that is that worked its way into the music we made, and so you know we just did not want to just keep doing the same thing. And so when you know we saw what was happening with like, oh now now bands are into Gang of Four, you know I think we were like, okay well that's cool like we love Gang of Four, but like let's let's do let's do something at least a little different than that, or you know you know dance punk or whatever had become popular and we we were just like let's let's just have some songs with like recorders or you know flutes on it and you know we just wanted you know just to do weird things and you know our last record is is kind of chock full of those weird things as is different damage i mean the first record to me is pretty trad kind of you know indie emo punk record or whatever like it's got a couple little flourishes but it's pretty conservative record in, in, to me, but by different damage, I mean, that's what, you know, you know, we get the melodica from, you know, like from listening to Augustus Pablo, um, or, but also from the Eternals and Trenchmouth, um, you know, or, you know, just some of like the weird things that we wound up doing on that record that, um, that we incorporated and, and definitely by the last record of power, it's like, you know, we were all DJing. I think all of us were DJing at that point. Um, and, you know, loved dance music and, you know, we're kind of wanted to sort of repudiate, you know, the, the, all the other bands that we were playing with all the time. So we were, so we wound up doing this record that was a little bit more of our attempt at like a true, a true dance music as opposed to like dance punk or something like that. So, and, and, and I, and I like that record too. I mean, I like all the records, um, but, um, 
yeah, I mean, I think that was just a, that was a theme for us was was just like you know what is everybody doing? Well, okay, we want to do something else, and, and I don't even say that in like a self-aggrandizing way. It's just kind of what it was, and and I, again, I think it was our competitive streak, and that we just really wanted to be different and better than everybody else, and um, and so sort of rejecting what was popular, just sort of that was our reflex reaction. But yeah, I mean. It went back to the same thing you discussed earlier. You know, we talked about that DIY of doing different things every time. You're doing that again with each of these yeah. records. And I think the it is interesting the amount of people that I've spoken to that have gone to dance music um, or am very versed in it. Um, uh, Norm from Texas, you know, very, very versed <laughs> in this, you know, world. It's just interesting the um, – maybe it was a – running away from it or not running away, but doing something different, doing something completely different from it. Um, and then I think too, for you guys having discord put out all the records. And again, it's not like they're coming at you saying, give me a single. Um, they're letting you sort of be yourself and change and, um, and to know that you had that sort of, uh, support must've felt great as well. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think they were psyched about our last record. I can say that. Um, I didn't like, know that they were not unsupportive, but I, I do remember getting that feeling. I was like, I don't think they like this record. Um, it just didn't really fit in, you know, with what they were doing. <laughs> but like speaking, you know, to like what you mentioned, like about the dance music thing, you know, I think that, you know, there, there's a, the element that drew a lot of people to punk was just like was, you know, the the iconoclasm or just like being different. And so we then we were all punk for a while, and then there are people who are like okay, well, I'm interested in something else, and now I want to turn my back on that, and then I'm going to get into this wholly different world, like dance music. But punk music and dance music are both like heavily rhythmic, you know, rhythm-centered music. And so even though, like, there's obviously there are huge differences between the genres, um, to me there is overlap. And so I'm not surprised that I got really into you know, whatever, French house or disco or any of the kind of, you know, music that like or Afrobeat or go-go or any of the other kinds of sort of, you know, heavily rhythmic music that I really got into at that time and all of which has, has stayed with me. But, um, I mean, punk is like that too. And, um, and, you know, you know, we keep talking about trench mouth, but they were, they were the sort of a perfect example and Fugazi too, you know, with their, the influence of, of like dub and like, and the pocket, and the rhythm and like all that music that was, I mean, Gogo was a massive influence on Fugazi. And then, and, and then in listening to Fugazi, it became an influence on me and, and on us, you know, and, um, there's a lot of overlap, even if it's not obvious. Um, that but, Foo Fighters doc that they did in DC were the, some of the episodes I was okay with. And I actually, I mean, I, I literally, I, I not literally, I did enjoy the stuff, <laughs> but the DC one I was so worried about, um, because I, I didn't want them to fuck it up. And I, I had not, I, you know, there's so much music out there. I didn't realize that go-go stuff. And I remember talking <laughs> to my buddy that grew up there and was like, yeah, man, that was this. And he kind of went off and talked about it. We never ended up talking about it in, in college, but that was crazy. Uh, if yeah. anyone hasn't seen that specific episode of Sonic Highways, the DC episode worth watching, pausing, and then coming back because it's just, what an amazing moment. Yeah, and, and even, you know, growing up here, um, even as a little kid, you know, uh, Debut by EU was like a top 40 hit um, when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. And, and, 
and that that song, you know, totally stuck with me and like sort of prepared me for the music that like in the early '90s and in high school and in college that I started to, you know, like Junkyard Band and Northeast Groovers and that that whole wave of of Go Go Rare Essence, you know, uh, you know, on and on, like all those all those kind of bands and like and you would see those bands with with punk bands too. I mean, Fugazi played. Uh, with Junkyard Band at this, like, community center in Silver Spring or Tacoma Park or something in Maryland, you know, in the mid-'90s. And um, there was that crossover, for sure. Um, and, you know, the, so the so the Go-Go thing is really beloved here in D.C. And so, you know, someone like Dave Grohl, who comes from here, um, is, is, you know, it's, it's great that he is, is championing that and getting that music in front of other people because, you know, that's another sort of, that's another sort of trope of DC is, you know, like, ah, go, go, never got the, never got out of DC, which is like kind of, kind of true. I mean, I suppose on, a, on a, like a top 40 music level, like, you know, Chuck Brown is really only known outside of DC for, for Bustin' Moose or whatever. But, um, you know, now I feel like in the last 10 years or something, you know, go, go has really gotten out there and, you know, the, the, the world, the world knows about go, go. <laughs> now I feel, um, which I am, I am grateful for, but yes, that was, and that, that kind of music was, again, was also a huge influence on Q and you. And, um, we, we got to collaborate with like some go-go musicians along the way. And that was, that was always an, an amazing thing for us. And, um, but yeah, it's just a huge part of loving music in DC. Um, for a lot of people means, um, means being immersed in go-go. And then for you after after Q and you you had did you stay in DC? Were you you were you were doing other bands? What other stuff were what other stuff were you getting into? I've been here, and I mean, really even as Q and you was ending, you know, um, I I was really pretty tired of, of what we've been doing, and um, I was and I've always been like a huge fan of pop music and and like you know, '60s music and. Um, and I just really wanted to do something different, like where where we just I wrote songs that that were like you know whatever, like the the zombies and the Beatles, and then like seventies power pop stuff, like Big Star and and Cheap Trick and the Beat, and you know all these all these things that I that's like all I was listening to almost you know by the end of Q and Not You was you know I used to just you know kill everyone in the van with listening to over and over again, like the undertones and the beat and, you know, the Rosillos and, um, the Buzzcocks and all that stuff like that was just what I loved. And so I was like, I need to do a band where like we do this kind of music. And so that was how Georgie James started. And that was the band that I did right after Q and not you. And we even, we wrote probably half that first record before Q and not you was even broken out. Um, so I was immediately ready to move on. Um, you know, as soon like before Q and I, he was even over. So right away we started Georgia James and we did a record on Saddle Creek and, um, and toured for a while. And then when that band broke up, I started doing title tracks, which is, um, you know, I guess essentially a solo project, but you know, I mean, I play with other musicians and, um, and I've been doing that for the last several years. Oh, that's right. You know, before we do title tracks, uh, the other, uh, another council member had told me, you're, you help curate at the University of Maryland that has a zine archive? Yes. What? Tell me about a zine archive at University of Maryland, and when can I visit? 
Well, you're you're welcome to visit uh, 10 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, um, and uh, well, on Wednesday we're open until eight. But um, I am a archivist at the University of Maryland. I'm the performing arts metadata archivist um, in the performing arts library, and I've been working there for about three years. Um, I, you know, after playing music for a long time, um, I wanted to have a job that um, didn't take me away from home so much. And so I went to grad school and and, um, um, and got a, a master's in library information science and um, and even that like not to um, go get too tangential here but even that was sort of you know was really inspired by punk because Henry Rollins and Ian Mackay were like the two first archivists I really hung around with and you know their their own personal archives were just a total inspiration for me getting into this field, and then Vin Novara, who was in a band called the Crown Hate Ruin, he's, he was archivist at the University of Maryland, um, he's another huge influence, and, and he, I, he is my boss now, um, so again, it all, it all came out of punk, but um, I started working there about three years ago, and within even a few months of starting there, I had suggested to Vin, my boss, um, what do you think about creating a DC punk fanzine collection here at Maryland because I was really influenced by the Riot Girl collection that was um, put together at NYU and uh, University of Iowa had a fanzine collection. Duke, like there were these, a number of these fanzine collections that were cropping up throughout the U.S. And, and I thought, you know, no one's doing that for DC. Why, you know, how about, how about we do that? And Vin, also having a punk background, was into the idea, and and it you know was legitimate as far as there was a growing academic interest in in punk and pop culture in general, and underground media and all these things that fanzines sort of uh, fall under. So um, we started, and you know within a few years, you know we we have hundreds of hundreds of fanzines that we have here. We're working our way through digitizing them. And then that sort of spun off into another project where um, we're digitizing Ian Mackay's fanzine collection, which um, I did an inventory of. So we, I did, like, you know, we, we went to his house and um, in his office there, I saw, you know, hundreds of these fanzines were just sitting on shelves, many of them sort of yellowed with age. And, and you know, as, an, as a young archivist, I was sort of aghast and it was just like, man, we got to do something about this. And so we were able to arrange a situation where, you know, Maryland rehoused these zines for them. We're foldering them. We're getting them in the boxes. We did a, a really very thorough inventory with a lot of metadata on the fanzines. And we're very slowly going through all of them and digitizing them. So um, I think there's something like 1,700 titles in his collection. And this, the idea is to get them online so people can see them. That's amazing. Yeah. That's great. I mean again, it's that it's that it's that learning, it's that it's that giving back and explaining the history and hopefully there's a review like that amazing American football review you did um or others that there's uh people can pull from and take something from. Yeah, I mean I get yes, and especially with fanzines, what I love about them is that you know there is no there is no filter of time. You know, like you might read what someone thinks about Husker Du or 
you know, Minor Threat or any of these bands that have, have become a part of the canon, um, you know, and you might hear what someone in 2005 or 2012 or 2016 thinks about them. But I love reading about what people thought about them in 1981 or 1983 or when it was really happening, or especially reading the interviews with these bands. You know, it's just this unvarnished take on what was really happening. And, it, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing and, and really informative and, um, you know, kind of, um, you know, builds up and destroys these myths at the same time. And, um, and I love just getting all these things together so people will be able to see them and to sort of look at the bands that were neck and neck with them at the time that, um, you don't hear about anymore as much anymore, you know, like, you know, you, as often as I would see Minor Threat interviewed, you'd also see like the Effigies and Kraut and like Channel 3 and all these other bands that were like interviewed just seemingly just as much um, as Minor Threat or, you know, Misfits or whoever um, that, you know, there are certainly, there's certainly a hardcore cult following for those bands too. But um, it's just kind of cool to see uh, what people cared about then just as much as they cared about the bands that have since become canonized. And that time before the internet, before there was, you know, you didn't, you didn't see anything. You didn't, uh, you didn't have any exposure other than what that CD was or that vinyl and what the packaging was. And you might've seen them once, but it wasn't this inundation of information. You only had what you could culminate from your experience. So that, that, that information they're putting out as from that zine seem, it seems pure. Um, at some point. For sure, yeah. Um, and one of my favorite zines from sort of, I guess, back in that era, It was this was sort of a late 80s, early 90s one. It was from the D.C. area, and it was called Sweet Portable U. And um, they would, at least at one point, they would put out a new issue every week, and then they would just bring it to the shows that were happening that weekend and give it out for free at the shows. And it was usually like a one- or two-page legal-sized um, fanzine that they would just, you know, print up during the week and staple together and bring to the shows. And it would have, like, last weekend's live reviews and, um, you know, or the, the new record that just came out this week. And it was, you know, in a way it was, you know, you know we talk about the Internet, it kind of was this early version of that, of, like, the, the best they could do at that time for that sort of instantaneous um, response and review and criticism that we now take for granted, you know, like if someone goes to a show now, you know, even if they're writing for, say, the Washington Post, you know, it's expected that, like, you know, by by the end of the night, the review is done, you know, and you'll read it in the morning. Um, or if, you know, you have friends that go see a show, they, they write about it right away on Facebook or whatever. Um, but again, back then, it was different. So something like Sweet Portable U was, was cool in that it was just like this weekly update on, like, you know, here's what happened last weekend. And, and then you bring it to the show and and then you just distribute it there and keep the cycle going. And you know who was the most popular person back then? The most popular who? person in the in the in the 90s or 80s probably too was the guy that worked at Kinkos. Oh, if you had a friend that worked at Kinkos, see there you go. That's why. Yeah, I, I worked at Kinkos. My first job was I I specifically got that job. Should we explain what Kinkos is for people? Can I explain what Kinkos is? Please do. <laughs> yes, um Kinko's was, well, it was a, was a uh, copy shop, which um, eventually got bought by uh, FedEx and 
and they're now known as, I think, FedEx Office or something like that. They had um, paper, but, everybody. They had paper. They used paper yeah. at this place. Yes, this, there were there these paper <laughs> products were used, and um, Kinko's was like, that's where everybody went to, you know, you'd make your flyers, you'd print your fanzines, and, and yes, like there was always, not always, but often, there would be some sort of sympathetic person who worked there who would hook you up and, you know, you'd come in and say like, uh, hey, can I, can I get some flyers made? You know, uh, can you give me 50? And then they'd give you like 250. Or they maybe wouldn't even charge you if you came in at one in the morning and, and you'd be the person doing the late night shift because Kinko's was open 24 hours, which was sort of part of its charm, I think. Um, and a lot of, you know, indie rock people I knew worked at Kinko's. I think Jenny Toomey from Simple Machines worked there. And, you know, again, I was just so inspired by all that. So I, I got a job at the Kinko's in Rockville, Maryland, and um, I made lots and lots of flyers and uh, many uh, issues of my zine and, um, you know, made friends with, with other musicians coming in and, um, and you know, would hook them up with stuff. And, and Kinko's also had, like, computers and scanners, and I, I mean, I, I took full advantage of all that stuff, and they had, like, stationery that I would take and use as clip art for flyers, and um, I'll just, I totally abused my time at working at Kinko's, but that was, that was pretty crucial um, exactly. in, See, you in just, the mid-90s. You just proved my point. <laughs> You're like, you gotta know a Kinko's, Kinko's guy. I'm the Kinko's guy. I was the Kinko's guy, <laughs> yeah, so for, for two solid years. Um, that was that was my job, and I took full advantage of it. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I do want to talk about your new music, um, title tracks. This is your third record and it's coming out on Ernest Jenning record mm-hmm. company, which, uh, also put out, um, Jeff Farina stuff. Um, talk about the record, talk about what, uh, it's coming out November 18th, correct? Yes. Um, it's the, yes, the third record it's called long dream and, um, yeah, it's been a few years since I've I've done a new title tracks record. We did two records. There was one in 2010 and another one in 2011. And then the last few years, I had mentioned I, I went to grad school. Um, so and you know, kind of started this new career. And um, you know, my wife and I had a child. And um, you know, I just things. You know, it's been very different the last five years than it than it had been previously. And I had also started a, another new band with um, my old q and U bandmate, Chris Richards. We started a band called Paint Branch, and we put out a record. So that, that also sort of took up that time. But um, I had always wanted to come back to title tracks, and, and so I started working on the songs again about two or three years ago. And, um, you know, just slowly getting the songs written and, and getting an album together. And uh, so we started playing shows again in the last year, and you know, played with um, lots of lots of great bands and, um, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, one of the purest sort of distillations of the kind of music that I love. I mean, I love power pop music and I love, you know, I love punk music still, obviously. And, and, you know, I love, you know, just all kinds of stuff that gets mixed in there, like sort of like the, the jangle stuff of like REM and, you know, the three o'clock and, um, and all the like obscure power pop stuff that I love from the eighties. And, um, but also like punk stuff like the wipers and, and who's do. And it's just all this music that I love. It kind of like works its way in and, and it just winds up being, <laughs> being the title track record. So, um, I don't, I, you know, I'm guessing the next thing I do will probably be pretty different from that. But, um, but I was really happy to get to make this record and I'm, 
very, very happy that it's coming out. And it's, um, yeah, it's definitely an expression of where I've been at musically for the last few years. And with a kid and family and stuff, are you going to be doing any shows or mom's keeping you close? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we're going to be touring, but we, you know, we're definitely going to do a few shows. But it's it's so it's it's like so expensive to to tour. Like, I'd be happy to go and play to like thirty or forty people in Los Angeles if it wasn't so expensive to do so. You know, like I'm, um, but it's just it's just really hard to to make it work. Um, so you know, I don't know. I'm I'm hoping that some sort of hologram technology will come along that like we that can make this possible to to like tour in a new way but it's um you know and there's a lot i miss about touring there's a lot i there's a lot that i don't miss about touring so um you know i i am i'm very satisfied with like the rhythm of my life and what i'm doing now and trying to build this new career as an archivist and you know sort of um build on the stuff that i'm you know, that I've done in the past and that I'm passionate about, but also find new things to be excited about and, um, and, and then build on that. So it's just, you know, I'm very happy with where everything is. And, um, and this new title track record is, is kind of a part of that, but yeah, well, I mean, we'll definitely do shows and, um, but touring seems unlikely. Yeah. And then for anything else that you're working on that, like you said, the, are there any other projects within the archiving uh, that you're thinking about or that you're like, oh, wow, I just heard about this and I want to explore. Is there anything else that you're excited about for next year? Yeah, I mean, like, I, you know, I like the ideas of doing, uh, you know, making another record that is, that explores, like, other kinds of music that um, that I'm into. And um, and, I, and I love seeing people that, yeah, I mean, you mentioned, like, Norm from Texas, the reason, like, going off and doing something different. And, you know, just... Um, you know, this week I've been really listening to, do you know the band 90 Day Men? Do you remember yeah, them? of course. Yeah, so so uh, Rob Lowe from that band, who I only knew very slightly at the time, but he's gone on to be this really, really interesting musician, and he's he's doing a lot of the kind of sort of analog synth music and um, sort of, um, I, mean, I, I don't know exactly what to call it, but it's like... Um, that I just really love, and I, I love like a lot of seventies um, synth music, um, like from the Berlin School and um, all that kind of stuff. And I would love to do something that combines that with a more um, with more like melodic songwriting. And I know that sounds like this very vague mishmash description, but um, like I was, you know, I've been enjoying this this video of uh, of Rob Lowe doing this performance. It's like about an hour long. Um, and he he has this device that attaches to a plant, and um, and the device is able to uh, purportedly read the biorhythms of the plant and and convert it into a MIDI signal, um, which is you know at least good for a laugh. And um, and he just made this amazing hour long um, recording. You know, I, you, the video of him just doing it live, and I was like, yes, I just I love. This I love people who have like been on the same path that I've been on, just doing different things and doing weird things and um, unexpected things. And like I kind of want to follow, continue to follow that path too. Especially since you know I'm really into that kind of stuff. So I love the idea of. I mean, Chris Richards and I, who I mentioned, we had that band Paint Branch. We had talked about doing another record, but um, our first Paint Branch record was kind of sort of like the idea was like if 
like Danzig playing like Crosby, Stills, and Nash songs or something. That was the idea <laughs> of the first Paint Branch record. It doesn't sound like that, but that was like that was our inspiration. And then he and I had talked about a record where it was just like entirely, just entirely analog synthesizers, but uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash songs as played on analog synthesizers. So um, I like the idea of following something like that. Um, again, just doing something that we haven't done before or that we've only sort of touched on and exploring it and, and trying to make something good. And some of it will be bad, some of it will be good. And, 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 and just following it and seeing what happens. But like that to me is being a creative person and, and of loving music is you just try it and you do it and maybe some of it will be good. <laughs> I will say that the, the very primitive internet, though, did get me in touch with people. That's actually how I met Kyle Fisher from Ram Maria, was like, um, was, it was like the spring of 1995, I was a freshman in college, and at the University of Maryland, where I went to school, there was a computer lab, and there were these crazy, like, terminals that would connect somehow, and, you know, it was just re- really primitive email. And yes, probably through some sort of BBS or something, um, you know, he was like, I have this band, Ezra Pound, we're looking for a show in D.C., can you help? And um, and I think he sent me a tape. I was like, well, that's, this band's good. And I wrote back to say I would help. And then he's like, oh, that band broke up, but I have this new band, Raina Maria, that um, uh, I'll send you the tape of that. And then he sent me that, and then that was like, oh, this is really good. <laughs> and then, um, and, you know, and then you know, I sort of became friendly with them. And Quorum played with them. Even Q and Not You played with them, um, sort of in during that heyday period. Um, and I was a big, big fan of them. But that's how I met. And I, you know, I definitely remember really primitive email um, and being in touch with Todd Bell and Bob from Braid, you know, and this is just, you know, it was like the very, like the dawn of the internet. And, you know, um, even before that, when I was in high school, if you remember Prodigy, is that? Oh yeah, know? totally. Yeah. So like there were, there were, you know, there were like bulletin boards or whatever, like pen pal sites where you would just somehow you would find like, Oh, this, this person's into Fugazi or this person's into Nation of Ulysses. And that was a lot of my early fanzine networking was through that. It was a, obviously <laughs> totally different time. And it was just, it was, it was funny. I mean, it was like, I loved, and even the anticipation of like waiting for the dial up modem to connect was like, like, Oh yes. Can't wait to get on a prodigy. And, um, and like, it was, it was this paradise that you like had to very slowly get, like get access to and, and you couldn't navigate it with any sort of speed at all. But it was, uh, you know, even by like 1993, I remember, you know, using yeah prodigy, like my, my, my my friend that I borrowed the drums and the PA from still, his neighbor had Prodigy. We would just go over to his house and um, and be like, "Hey, can we get on your computer?" And we would we would all sit there around the computer in at this friend's house, <laughs> and we would go on and look for pen pals that were into like Operation IV and Fugazi and you know Minor Threat and the Clash and Gray Matter and um, and then you know we I, in fact I instilled to this day friends with someone that I met, um, on one of those boards. And she was like, I'm, you know, I'm interested in, you know, these bands and I, we traded mixtapes and we are still, we are still like friends <laughs> more than 20 years later. It's, it's kind of funny. I hadn't even thought about it. 
it's it's interesting like how far back this stuff goes and and how long like some of these relationships can can last even with people that like in some cases you know like this this friend that I mentioned that I met on project I've actually only met her in person one time in my wow. whole life and we have just remained online pen pals for 24 years, you know, 23 years or something like that. And, you know, we just check in and she still has all the tapes that I made her. And she, she um, transcribed the, the track lists for me a couple of years ago and, and sent them along. And, and it was really amazing to see like, so this is what I was really into in the fall of 1992, you know? Um, and it was, that was like a total sort of treasure to get to see all that. I feel like there's this whole, it's not happening. Like there's no one is saving it. And, um, so I, I don't know if I have to quit my job to do it, but there's just seems to be, uh, there's all this stuff right now that there was when there was still stuff, it's not just, uh, in the ether. It's not just a email. There's actually right. things. Yeah. And, um, and, and it is true that like, you know, as every day passes, let alone every year, I mean, stuff gets lost and, you know, people move and they throw things out or, you know, a, a basement sluts and, and an entire, you know, lifetime of stuff is, is destroyed. Um, you know, I, I'm, I've run into this, you know, constantly with my job, not even just the fanzine stuff, but just, you know, our regular collections. You know, so we're, you know, we're always fighting against time to try to get things and fighting against that notion that people have where it'll just be like, oh, nobody wants this. It's just a bunch of crap from, you know, you know who, who cares about this? But there are people that care about it, and certainly in the case of like you know this genre of music that you're talking about, there's I mean you know there's going to be there's obviously a huge fan base, and um, and there's already you know there's already academic research in it you know so you know like there there is there is interest in that there's there's there is purpose in that so yes I you know I, I would not only would I encourage you to do whatever you can I would help however I could. To, to to facilitate that. John, thank you so much for doing this. Of course, thank you for thank you for talking to me. I'm happy to talk about all this stuff. Thank you, John, for being on the podcast. Once again, this episode is sponsored by the wonderful people at Triple Crown Records, and they are releasing the new You Blew It album, Abendrot, on November 11th. Produced by Evan Weiss of Intuit over it. And I think it doesn't sound like anything else the band has done. That is a damn good thing. This is a giant leap forward for the band and the independent scene itself. Thank you for listening to episode 84 of the Watched Up Meanwhile podcast with John Davis from Q and Not You and Title Tracks. If you want to help, watchedupemo.com. We have a merch store. We have a Patreon. You can leave a review on iTunes. You can hit me up, admin at watchedupemo.com for suggestions, complaints, compliments. Complaints, usually. That's usually what it is. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.